Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. You know, sometimes people ask the question about God. Well, who made God? You know, sometimes a child will ask a question like that. I've had young children ask me that many times. Uh, Who made God? The answer is no one made God. Because you see, God is eternal. And this is what distinguishes him. This is what sets him apart. This is what makes him holy. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Isaiah chapters 44 through 45. Now, here's Pastor Brian. We're going to go rather quickly through chapter 48 because chapter 49 is extraordinary. It is one of the great chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah is chocked full of just tremendous prophecy. Of course, Isaiah was a prophet, but Isaiah is really known as the prophet of the Messiah. And when we get into chapter 49, we are going to see some of the most extraordinary and beautiful prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus. And so I don't want to uh, miss out on any of that. So like I said, we'll go rather quickly through the 48th chapter, but there's some real solid gold in chapter 48 as well. So don't want to miss that either. So let's go ahead and pick up Isaiah chapter 48 and verse one says, hear this O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and have come from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. So as we go through these chapters and particularly here in the 40s, you know, the Lord is going back and forth through the prophets, speaking to the people. And he's speaking to them about judgment because of their sin and rebellion. And the fact that at this time, he's projecting into the future when they're in captivity in Babylon. So he sometimes is reminding them of why they're there because of their sin and also insinuating that In some cases, their heart really hasn't changed. In some places, he's dealing with prophecies against Babylon and the fact that they're going to be judged. We saw that in the chapter we looked at last time. And then we're talking about God's deliverance of Israel from Babylon, from the captivity. And this, of course, is going to happen at a certain period in their history, but it's also a picture of the ultimate deliverance from captivity that will come at the end of time with the return of the Messiah. So sometimes we just have to try to really discover, okay, you know, what period is he referring to here? And so here, once again, we see that the Lord is rebuking them. He's calling out their sin, even though they take the name of the Lord on their lips, basically their hearts aren't really there. So here the Lord calls him out on that. But then he says in verse three, I have declared the former things from the beginning, 
They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them and they came to pass. All the way through these chapters, we've been seeing how God is distinguishing himself from the idols. Now, remember, they went into captivity because of their idols. And the idolatry had so proliferated in Judah. Basically, it just became a, a center for idolatry. And so God is often reminding them about the distinction between himself and the idols. And one of the things that he continues to point to is his accurate knowledge of the future. So this is the claim of the Lord that he and he alone can predict the future. And he predicts it very precisely. He predicts it with 100% accuracy. And so this is the thing that sets him apart from the false gods and shows him to be the true God. And so here again, he makes reference to that. And, but he says, I've told you these things in advance because I knew that you were obstinate and your neck was an iron sinew and your brow bronze, even from the beginning, I have declared it to you before it came to pass. I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, my idol has done them. So this is, this is how steeped in idolatry they were, that they were going to attribute their success. They were going to attribute their prosperity. They were going to attribute uh, these uh, events that were beneficial to them. They were ready to attribute that to their idols. And so God says, well, I intentionally told you in advance that they were going to happen so you would know that it wasn't your idol who did it. This is how carried away they were with their idolatry. And so you, lest you say my idol has done it, my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. You have heard, see all of this, and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning. And before this day, you have not heard them, lest you should say, of course, I knew them. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely long ago, your ear was not opened. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. So here again, we see that uh, the Lord is speaking very firmly to them because of their sin and their rebellion. And then he says, for my name's sake, I will defer my anger and for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. So they could have been, and in some senses should have been cut off completely. God should have just washed his hands of Israel, but he didn't do that. And he said he didn't do it for his own namesake. And then he says, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. So because of their sin, they should have been obliterated. But... God said, for my namesake, for my own glory, because I made you promises 
and I'm going to honor those promises, even though you have done everything to really disqualify yourselves from it. I'm going to honor them anyway because of who I am, because I'm God, because I'm good, because I'm faithful. And then he says in verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. This, since the 40th chapter, this is about the fifth or sixth time that God speaks of himself as being the one who made the heaven and the earth, being the creator. So again, they're worshiping idols, they're worshiping images. We've talked about that in the past and God is continuing to juxtapose himself with them. I'm, I'm the one who was from the beginning. I'm the one who will be there in the end. This is a way of God's describing his eternal nature. You know, sometimes people ask the question about God, well, who made God? You know, sometimes a child will ask a question like that. I've had young children ask me that many times. Uh, who made God? The answer is no one made God. Because you see, God is eternal. And this is what distinguishes him. This is what sets him apart. This is what makes him holy. The word holy means distinct or different. We talk about holiness and we talk about being set apart. Well, God is holy in many ways. He's holy morally and so forth. But he's also holy in the sense that he is completely distinct from and set apart from everything else. And part of that is his eternal nature. So we only know things in the context of time. So it's very difficult for us to get our heads around the idea that there is a being, there's a person who did not have a beginning and will not have an ending. He is eternal. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. And as we read in the book of Revelation, using the Greek alphabet, he is the alpha and the omega. And so this is, again, the Lord's way of showing his separateness from everything and everyone else. All of you assemble yourselves and hear who among them has declared these things. The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I even, I have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him and his way will prosper. Now, this is, it's a little bit difficult to know exactly who is being referred to here. We've seen the, the prophecies concerning Cyrus. God has declared that he raised up Cyrus. He named him before he was ever born, and uh, he's going to be his servant. He's going to come against the Chaldeans, and basically he's going to be God's instrument of judgment for Babylon and the instrument of liberation for Israel. So it seems like it could be Cyrus, again, that is being referred to, but it's interesting the Lord loves him uh, because we know in another place that we've already looked at the Lord speaks of Cyrus as, although you do not know me or acknowledge me, I know you. So it seems like the Lord loves him as maybe, maybe Cyrus is not 
who's being referred to here. The other possibility is that it's Israel. The Lord loves Israel. And because he loves Israel, he's going to deal with Babylon and he's going to come against the Chaldeans. And if you notice in verse 14, it refers to his arm and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Now that's significant because when we get to chapter 53, the clearest passage concerning Jesus in all of the Old Testament, he is referred to as the arm of the Lord, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. So it very well could be that this is, again, prophetic, speaking of the Lord himself. And there's a reason in the next verses here that I think that might be the case. So verse 15 says, I even I have spoken, yes, I have called him, I have brought him, and his way will prosper. And now listen to verse 16. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. So it's a very interesting passage here. Notice that the speaker, the speaker says that he's been sent. And this phrase, we're going to see it again as we go through. Come near to me, hear this, listen to me. This is the way the Lord speaks to the people. So here's the interesting thing. The Lord is speaking And the Lord is saying that he has been sent. And he's saying that he has been sent by the Lord God and his spirit. So here's a very interesting seeming reference to the Trinity in Isaiah. Because you have the Lord God, which would be a reference to Yahweh, or as we would understand, a reference to the Father. And then you have a reference to the Spirit. So the Father And the Spirit have sent me, the speaker, who is also the Lord. So fascinating. Some translations read a little bit differently. They read that the Lord God has sent me and also his Spirit, but the idea is the same. So it seems to me that as we're moving into chapter 49, I've already mentioned that 49 is so heavily messianic that this is just a preparation. Of course, the chapter distinctions are something that were invented by people to help us make our way through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. There would not have been a chapter distinction back at the time. So as you continue to follow the line of thought, it takes us right into these crystal clear messianic passages. But just so you know, this is a passage that if it is understood that it is the Lord, the Father, the Spirit, and then the speaker, the one who has been sent, this, of course, is a Trinitarian passage. And, and of course, we know that Jesus would be the one who was sent. So thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, verse 17, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. And so here God is 
really just grieving in a sense over what has happened to the people because it shouldn't have happened. It wasn't God's plan for it to happen. And, and yet they're in captivity. They've gone through this severe judgment and life is horrific for them. It was horrific and it wasn't, you know, a, a cakewalk under living in the captivity in Babylon. But yet what the Lord is saying basically is they brought all of this upon themselves. It was never God's intention because had they heeded his command, he said to them, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. And, you know, this is something that we should pause and just think about ourselves for a moment too, because God's intention for us is good. His plan for us is good. And the way we experience the good life, the blessed life, is by taking heed to his commandments. Now, there's nobody that has lived in obedience to God's word who looks back and regrets it. <laughs> People who live in obedience to God's word, they, they look upon their lives and they are thankful that through that obedience, blessing has come. And, and that's the way it works. God's given us his word and he, of course, he expects us to do it, to obey him. And as John tells us in his first letter, his commandments are not burdensome. You know, God gives us commands in order to protect us, in order to preserve us, in order to bless and prosper us. And so as we walk with him, now, don't misunderstand me. This doesn't mean that we don't have problems. Doesn't mean that we don't go through seasons of difficulty or trial, but, but those are different than self-inflicted wounds that come as a result of disobeying what God has said. And that was Israel's state. They never should have gone into captivity. As you go back into the scriptures in the early stages of their deliverance from Egypt, and you have all of these promises that God gives to them. I'm taking you to this land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land where you're going to inherit houses that you didn't build and fields, that vineyards that you didn't plant. And basically God's just saying, I've got this great life for you. There's one condition. Do what I say, obey me, keep my laws. And, and so they weren't meant to be a burden to the people. They were meant to be a protection. And so this is true for us today. When God tells us to not do certain things, when God tells us to you know, stay away from behaviors and substances and, and things of that nature, he's not doing that to put a burden on us. He's doing that to protect us because God knows that these things are destructive. And, you know, sin is, is a deceptive thing. The Bible refers to the deceitfulness of sin. And what does that mean? It means that tr sin fools you, tricks you, makes you think that it's actually somehow going to be beneficial to you. Sin always promises what it can never deliver. It promises happiness. It promises fulfillment. It promises joy. It promises peace. It promises, you know, all of these things. But it actually never can deliver any of them.
it delivers really just the opposite. It promises freedom, but it delivers bondage. It brings people into captivity and it promises life and it brings death. And so God's commandments are not to restrict us. Like I said, they are to protect us. And just like Israel, just as the Lord says here, oh, that you had heeded my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. What a a beautiful picture. Peace like a river. Have you ever seen a a river that's just, you know, not not a raging river, but a but a, a place where there's just a calmness, and uh, a river can be so calming itself. You can sometimes just stand on the bank of a river, or maybe nearby on a bridge overlooking a river or something like that, and and it's just it's peaceful. Um, I used to live by the River Thames in London. And it was just a few minute walk from our house. And it was a place where we would go and we would walk and just walking along the River Thames, it was peaceful. And I think of that when I read this peace like a river, but then your righteousness, like the waves of the sea, what does that mean? Well, I was thinking about the waves of the sea, how the waves just keep rolling in and, you know, waves are created by wind way out, you know, in the oceans, but when that wind stirs up a swell and, and there are these times when you will get these waves that just pound the beach, just wave after wave after wave. And uh, growing up as a surfer, we call those waves that they come in, they come in sets. And um, there's usually a set that comes in with a number of waves in it, depending on the, the size of the swell and the power of the swell. And then there's a lull, there's a pause between the sets. And that's good for surfers because that means you can get out to the break uh, without getting pulverized (laughs) by the waves. But then, you know, the set, the next set comes in and the waves come rolling in. But, you know, I've seen times where the swell has been so strong and so consistent that there's no pause between the sets. It just keeps going wave after wave after wave. And when the Lord speaks of your righteousness being like the waves of the sea, he's just talking about that steady, just that consistent, that continuous rolling in of the waves. That's the kind of righteousness that God brings to those who heed his commands. So as God's people today, let's be obedient. Let's do what the Lord says to do. And remember, it's not a burden. God has not put these things on us to stifle us or to strap us or to, you know, hold us back from some good thing. No, he knows that these things are harmful. And so he's instructed us how to live. And he promises peace like a river and righteousness like the waves of the sea. Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament theology for real life by Dr. Nijay Gupta. Words can change their meaning over time, or they can carry a different meaning depending on the context in which they are used. 
So what is the meaning today of words in the Bible like faith, grace, hope, or peace? Do these words still have the same meaning today? Do you really understand what they mean in the Bible? These words not only have a rich history of meaning that is found within the whole Bible, but they also have a powerful significance for our lives today. You'll learn what it means to know God, to be changed by His favor, and how to lean into a redeemed future with an expectation of wholeness, goodness, and harmony. This book will bring theology into your life in a very practical way, as Nietzsche helps you to reflect on how each of the 15 words might look like in everyday life. If you're interested in what the New Testament has to say about God, God's people, or God's world, then you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament theology for real life by Dr. Nijay Gupta, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Isaiah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.